I just want to declare that I might be the least handy male in this room because men like to work with tools and fix things. I'm not that guy. In fact, my wife and my daughter both are better at fixing things than I am and they enjoy it more than I do. But I know enough to know that when you are doing any kind of job, the right tool is important. Having the right tool to use makes all the difference. If you are tearing out sheetrock, sledgehammers, crowbars are the thing to have. But if you're working on a pair of glasses, your instruments need to be a lot smaller and more delicate, right? If you are giving a, a drink of juice to a toddler, then a sippy cup is the right thing. But if it's your future in-laws, then you want a crystal glass and you don't want to get those mixed up or things could get ugly. Uh, if you are going into surgery and you look up just before the anesthesiologist hits you with the happy juice and you see the surgeon standing there with a meat cleaver, I recommend you get up and run out because that's not the right tool. A harp and an electric guitar both have strings, but they are used for very different purposes and almost never at the same time. Now, one of the things I've learned also is that men love golf. Uh, one of the reasons I think men love golf is because there are so many cool little tools you can use. You carry a whole bag of tools and you, you see the man halfway down the fairway and he pulls out his little range finder and he says, aha, we have 147 yards to the hole and there's a stiff wind blowing in my face. I, I think I'll use my five iron here. And you feel like you're some kind of a technician diffusing a bomb or something. So um, I, for one, don't love golf. Uh, the surest way to ruin my day off is to invite me out to a golf course. Um, when I play golf, it's like the world's worst Easter egg hunt. I, I'm, just, I'm just looking for things I don't really want and angry about it the whole time. You know why they call it golf, right? Because all the other four-letter words were taken. So um, the last time I played an actual round of golf was in a, a tournament, a four-person scramble that our church was involved in. And so I played with three other members of our church. And I, I was just as bad as ever and just horrific at this game. And I was doing my best. They were being very patient with me. I was doing my best to hide my frustration. I was thankful that we were on the last hole. And uh, it was time to drive. And one of my teammates looked over at me and said, why don't you use my driver this time? And he handed it to me. And as soon as I held it in my hands, I thought, oh, this is different than anything I possess. This, this actually cost money. You know, I was, I was using like the starter set that they give, you know, never mind. Uh, so, so I hit my drive and I'm like, well, that was better than I've ever hit anything in my life. The right tool makes all the difference. Now, in life, we can see, can't we, that there are certain people who were born to do certain things. Sorry, Ranger fans, when you watch Jose Altuve hit a baseball, you know what he was born to do, right? Uh, there are certain things like that. We see people who are born to do certain things. And my, my point that I want to share with you is every one of us was born to do something. It's, it's like that scene in, in Forrest Gump when he learns to play ping pong and he says, they told me I was like a duck in water. You know, you are born to do something, but it's not to play ping pong and it's not to hit a baseball. It's something better. It's something more meaningful. Today, we're going to look at the story of a man named Ananias. And all we know about him is the story we're going to read today that shows a big part of why he was born, his purpose in this world. Now, every Christian knows the story of the, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. 
If you don't know that story, you can read all of Acts 9 on your own time, but I'm just going to show you one part of it because a lot of people think that Saul was converted on the road to Damascus when he met Jesus in a vision on high, and that's when he was saved. Not true. When Saul met Jesus on the road to Damascus, it did not save him. It broke him because he went from one minute thinking that he was God's, God's man, that he was the, the, the star of the religious world to finding out he was essentially Osama bin Laden, right? He was against everything God stood for, killing God's people. And so he was led by the hand by his friends to Damascus, blinded by the light that he had seen in the sky and broken in spirit, anticipating that God was going to roast him in the fires of wrath because he deserved it. Any minute now I'm going to die because I have stood opposed to God and his people. And then God sent this man Ananias. So let's read that story. Verse 10. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So here's all we know about Ananias. He was a devout Jew who lived in Damascus, who believed that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, Savior of the world. That made him one of maybe two or 3,000 people on earth at the time who had that belief system. All of them were Jews. He knew about Saul. He knew what Saul had done in Jerusalem, how he had basically wrecked the church, this, this movement that was growing and saving people and doing great things, and now all of a sudden it was scattered to the four winds because of this one man, Saul who had gone into houses and dragged people out and arrested them. Some of them were put to death, who had disrupted families, who had terrified the people of God. And I have to tell you, if you would have interviewed Ananias right after that moment when God spoke to him and said, I want you to go speak to Saul, he would have said, I don't want to do this. I'm doing this because I heard a vision, because I saw uh, God and, and heard his voice, but I don't want to heal Saul. I don't want to see Saul. He's the last person I want to meet. He is, he is someone I'm scared of, someone who everything about him is something I hate. I don't want to do this, but he did it. He, he knew that God had chosen Saul for some special purpose, and Ananias was his chosen instrument to make it all come true. And so this is why he did what he did next. Verse 17, then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. I want you to notice three things. Notice that, that detail about scales falling from Saul's eyes. The Bible doesn't tell us what that means. Some people have speculated that it was cataracts, but we can't be dogmatic about that. I think it was just God's way of saying, you don't see the way you used to. I'm giving you a new way to see the world through my eyes. Second thing I want you to see, Saul did not get baptized in the name of Jesus until 
he met Ananias. And it wasn't the healing, I think, that made the difference. Although that made a tremendous difference. I think it was the words, and this is the third thing I want you to see, the words that Ananias spoke when he walked through that door, Brother Saul. Think about it. Here's Saul thinking, I have stood opposed to God's work and God's people. I am responsible for the deaths of many people who believed in his son. I have blood on my hands. And now a Christian comes into the room and the first word he says is, brother. Not because he liked Saul, not because he thought they had a lot in common and they'd be buds someday. He, Ananias called him brother because he said, my God loves you. And so I love you. I don't like you yet, but I love you. And you matter to him, so you matter to me. And think about it. Saul was the perfect instrument for this job. Saul was the perfect one to take the gospel to the Roman world. He was a Roman citizen, unlike most of the Christians at that time. He was highly educated, unlike any of the other 12 apostles. And so he could debate uh, philosophers on Mars Hill in Athens. And he could write long texts that tell us the truth about grace and about salvation in the cross and the resurrection. He, he had equipping that the other apostles didn't have. He also was a man who was formerly a violent racist, so better than anybody else, he could say to Gentiles, Listen, I don't see the world the same way I used to. And so I can say definitively that in Jesus, all these racial distinctions don't matter. In, in Christ, it doesn't matter whether you're a slave or free, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, whether you're red, yellow, black, brown, or white. It doesn't matter because you're all one in Christ Jesus. He could say that with credibility. He wasn't naive. He knows what it's like to hate somebody who's not like you. Saul was the perfect instrument to become the Apostle Paul to change the world for good. And Ananias was the perfect instrument, the perfect tool to speak to Paul. That's the way God works. Paul talked about this later in 2 Corinthians 4, 6-7. through He wrote, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. He's saying, in the same way God, when he created the world, said, let there be light. When God comes into my life, he didn't just give me physical sight back. He gave me the ability to see the world through the eyes of God. Through, he, he gave me the ability to see Jesus in every person so I could love them in his name. But look what he says next. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. What is he saying? Well, first of all, if you, if you, if you look at the Greek, the word jars in the, word, in the phrase jars of clay, which we've heard before, that word jars in Greek is the same Greek word that Luke used in Acts 9 to say God's chosen instrument. Paul was God's chosen vessel, and he's saying we're all vessels carrying God's light, but we're vessels of clay, which means we can get dinged up. We can get dented. We can get cracked and chipped and broken. We can leak sometimes, but God uses us in perfect vessels, imperfect instruments to do his work. See, unlike me, God can hit a perfect drive with a substandard club. He doesn't need the perfect person. He needs you. He wants you, and he wants to use you just as you are. So what does this mean for us four things? Number one, you are God's chosen instrument. You are. 
You are God's chosen instrument for something very, very important. Every single one of you. Yeah, but Jeff, I'm, I'm not that great. I'm not educated. I don't know much. I'm not, I don't have my life together. It doesn't matter. He's the one that matters. I know I quote this verse all the time. If you, if you go to this church often, you've heard this. Hopefully you've got it memorized by now. You could probably say it along with me. But Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You were made for a purpose. You were made for specific good works. Just like Ananias, one of the reasons God created a person named Ananias and gave him the particular mix of gifts and abilities and experiences that he had was so that someday he could walk into a room on Straight Street in Damascus and go up to a former terrorist named Saul and say, you're my brother. Here's your sight. In the same way, you were created for a purpose for good works that God prepared before you were ever born because he's God. Number two, your purpose has everything to do with people. Okay, I need, to, I need to speak very clearly here. And if you are a young adult or a teenager or a child right now, especially listen to me. But when, you, when you're young and you think about what you want your life to be, you think, well, I want to be successful. I want to be really good at something. I want the world to look at me and say, hooray, you've done a great job. Or you say, well, I want to make enough money that I can, I can give my family the kind of lifestyle that I've always wanted for myself. I'm gonna, I want to be able to live like those people I see on television and afford the things that make them happy. Or you say, I want to be able to do something that I love. That's my dream. It's not important to make a lot of money. I just, I want to be able to do something I enjoy so that I won't be, I won't find my daily work a drudgery. Now listen, I'm not here to give anybody career advice because that's not my area of expertise, but I am here to tell you that your purpose in life is not contingent on being satisfied in your job or making a lot of money or making a name for yourself. If any of those ha things happen to you, hallelujah, praise God for it, enjoy it. I enjoy what I do, that is a blessing, but that's not my life's purpose. Your life's purpose has everything to do with the people around you and how you relate to them and whether you are used by God to reach those people, whether you allow yourself to be used by God to touch those people with his love. That's your purpose. That's why you are here. How do I know that? Because we follow Jesus. What did Jesus do when he was here? He came to seek and to save the lost, period. If we're really following Jesus, that's what we're going to be about, that's what our lives will be structured around, and that's how we will measure the success or the failure of our lives. I knew a guy uh, when I was growing up, uh, and he was an insurance salesman. Uh, before I was ever born, he was on a business trip, spend the night in a hotel, happened to pull open the desk drawer. Some of you are too young to remember this, but the Gideons used to put Bibles in every hotel room. He found that Gideon Bible and read it, and prayed and accepted Christ that night as his Savior. Now, when I was first uh, preaching, I would sometimes tell that story as a way of saying, I, on all my life, I've only known one person who got saved without someone witnessing to them. And I'd tell them the story of my friend, and, and I'd say, see, he's the exception that proves the rule. Everybody else I know, they needed someone to tell them the gospel. Well, I saw him after a couple of years that I'd been preaching, and I told him, hey, I've been telling your story, and I, I told him what I said. And he said, well, that's not how it happened. And I said, what? 
He said, no, no. He said, uh, yeah, I was in a hotel room and yeah, I was reading the Bible, but uh, the, the reason I got saved wasn't because of that Bible. The reason I got saved was because I had a guy that I worked with that was praying for me every day and he was constantly having conversations with me about Jesus. And uh, that night I was just in a bad place. I was hurting and I, I thought back to our conversations and I realized what I needed in my life was God. So that's when I pulled that Bible out and started reading it. And that's why I got saved. And so now I say, I don't know anybody <laughs> who's come to know Christ without someone sharing the gospel with them. In fact, let me say this. Churches and Christianity, period, we, we love to do these big, these big efforts, these big strategies, these big bold events that try to bring people to Christ. We love to rent out a stadium and bring in an evangelist in a band, or we love to uh, you know, rent all the billboards in town and put messages on them or hand out gospel tracts or, or do TV commercials, and all those things are fine, and, and I'm not criticizing them. I just don't know anybody that got saved that way. I'm not saying they haven't, and maybe that's your testimony. If so, great, hallelujah, I'm glad those efforts weren't wasted. It's just that every person I know who's following the Lord today, whose testimony I'm aware of, it's always, there was this person who told me about Jesus. There was this person who showed me what it was like to follow Christ. It was my mom or my dad. It was my, my football coach. It was my uh, algebra teacher. It was my Sunday school teacher, my pastor. It was my friend. It was a stranger. It was my boss. But it was someone. Someone made a difference in your life, and that's why you're saved today. And by the way, when I say that your purpose has everything to do with people, it doesn't mean that everything you do for the Lord is direct evangelism. So I got this cool little story because uh, I'm a preacher and everything becomes a story. But um, several weeks ago, I ran in a 5K in Houston. And I, most of the time I was running, it's 3.14 miles. Most of that course, I was running about 15, 20 yards behind a guy and the, uh, on the back of his shirt, in bold letters, it said blind. So this is a guy who was blind, who was running, who, by the way, beat me. Um, and he was running, and the, way he was, the reason he was able to run a 5K is because he was tethered to a guy who was running uh, right next to him. So wrist to wrist, about a three-foot cord, these two guys were running together. And so I had a lot of time to think, and I, I thought, what a picture of the church. Because... This guy who was running with the blind guy, he had to run at exactly the same pace, which means if the blind guy was faster than him, he had to work really hard to keep up. If the blind guy was slower than him, that meant he had to run slower than he normally would, which for a man is harder than running faster than you normally can, right? Either way, he was sacrificing to enable his friend to do something he otherwise couldn't do. And that's what we're called to do. I'm not saying everything we do is something we, should, we, we don't want to do. I am saying that every day we need to look for opportunities to sacrifice for someone else. To help someone else experience, achieve, uh, feel something they don't ordinarily and couldn't without us. Our lives need to be about serving others. That's our purpose. And number three, nearly every time, the people God will use you to reach are broken people. So we talk about transforming relationships all the time here in this church. I know because some of you have told me that you want to be helpful, you want to do your part, but you don't know 
who to invest in. And yeah, we, we try to give opportunities. You can mentor kids in schools and you can, you can come on Tuesdays and, and help the homeless and you can do ESL. There, there are different things that we do so that you can have relationships. I mean, the car show next Saturday, that's an opportunity for you to come and meet people. But if you really want to know how to make a difference in people's lives and who in your current circle you should reach out to, just ask yourself the question, who do I know who is broken right now? And if you have eyes to see, you'll be surprised how many of the people you know are broken, struggling, barely making it. And one of the best things you can do, one of the best ways you can start is just walk up to them in a quiet moment and put a hand on the shoulder and say, let me say a prayer for you. And I've had people that weren't religious at all and just, just saying a prayer for them. That was a sign to them, there is a God and he cares about me. And it wasn't because I'm a pastor, because some of those people didn't know I was a pastor. It was because somebody paid attention. And once you've prayed, then you start asking the question, what can I do for them? Do I, do I, can I steer them toward counseling so they can get help for their depression, so they can get help for their anxiety, for they, so they can get help for their suicidal tendencies? Do they need someone to encourage them to go back to school? Do they need someone with connections that can help them find a job? Do they need someone uh, with skills who can help them manage their money or someone who can just encourage them to give a, give a phone call to that, to that son or daughter or that, that spouse or that, that parent that you're estranged from? Do they need someone to uh, help just sit with them while they deal with their grief. We're called to do those kinds of things. Look for the broken people around you. They're all around you. We have this tendency to just focus on the people we like who are just like us. But let me say it again. Ananias didn't go to Saul's house because he liked him. He went because Saul was broken and God told him to. Don't wait for an audible voice. Just look for those who are broken. Love them as best you can, and God will use that. In fact, that's the last point. Number four, if you allow God to use you, eternity will change for the better in ways you can never foresee. I like to think that Ananias lived a long time after this and was able to see uh, Saul become the Apostle Paul and go out into the world and, and change the world for Christ. I, I, I want to believe that. Here's what I believe with all my heart. Even if he didn't see it with his own eyes, when he got to heaven, God showed it to him. He had no idea when he walked into that house on Straight Street what the ripple effects of that one action would be. We don't know. When we take the time to pray for someone, when we take the time to invest in someone, we don't know what the ripple effects will be. You might just help that one person, but that one act may have ripple effects that change thousands of lives. Now, this isn't nearly the same thing. But I want you to think again about that insurance salesman I told you earlier who got saved in the hotel room. He later became my Sunday school teacher. The church I grew up in was so small, I had the same Sunday school teacher from the time I was about 10 or 11 until the time I graduated high school, and it was him. His name was Bob Harbors. He was also our insurance salesman. We knew him well. Um, when I graduated and went off to college, I thought, well, okay, that's it for me and Bob. But then a few years later, I felt called to the ministry. And Bob and his wife, Susie, wrote me a card and said, hey, we feel called to support you guys. And so from that day forward, for the next three years while I was in seminary, I got a check in the mail once a month for 
Every month on the dot, I could count on it, 35 bucks. You may think, well, what's 35 bucks? Well, this was from 93 to 96, so 35 bucks was bigger then than it is now. Plus, we had nothing. We were poor. That made a difference. And even more than the money, it was just that, that knowledge that, hey, besides mom and dad, there's somebody out there that supports us, that cares about us. Now, if you, I don't know the name of the guy who witnessed to Bob back in the day before I was born. I don't know anything about him except he sold insurance. I guarantee you he had no idea that because he witnessed to that guy, there would someday be somebody pastoring First Baptist Conroe, right? Had no idea the impact that what he was doing would have on the world. And you don't either. All you can do is just reach out to the broken in the name of Christ. Just do what he's called you to do. I think, I think one reason we experience failure and frustration in life, why there are so many Christians who are so dissatisfied. Are you ready for this? It's because we're doing our best to try to get God to bless our plans when God says, no, I want you to follow my plan instead. We're trying to shoehorn God's plan into our plan. We're trying to say, okay, God, here's what I want. I want this and this and this and this and this. And God says, no, no, I created you for this. I mean, you're an electric guitar. They want a harp at the little old lady's tea room, okay? You don't need to be over there. You need to be over here. Do what I've commanded you to do, what I've created you to do, and you'll experience joy, and you'll make an impact, and you'll have the satisfaction of knowing that your life means something. And by the way, along the way, if it fits into my plan, I'll give you some of these things you wanted, but that's not what I'm here to do. And that's not what you're here to do. Your purpose is the people around you. And the more, the more you let me use you to change their lives for good, the more your life will go the way that you were created for it to go. See, the story of humanity is this, in case you didn't know. God looked down on a human race that was sick and broken beyond repair. And God, the great physician, knew the exact right tool it would take to fix the human race. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus came into the world, God in human flesh. He chose himself as the instrument to fix humanity. He knew his purpose. He told people ahead of time, I I have come to seek and to save the lost. I have come to be a ransom for many. I'm the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. If I be lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. And then came that day when we did lift him up on a cross. And Jesus destroyed sin and death, the incurable disease that afflicted us all. He destroyed it by becoming sin himself and dying on the cross. It's like he went inside sin and death and blew them up from the inside. And then he rose again. And that's why every relationship in your life matters forever. That's why every conversation you have echoes in eternity. That's why every prayer you pray makes the devil tremble. That's why every act of kindness you perform changes this world a little bit more into the kingdom of God. So you have a reason to live. Your life matters. We are God's chosen instrument to do great things. Let's go out and do them.